you've been with us recently, last week, you know we started uh, a new sermon series on the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy. Our theme for this year at our church is maturing, maturing as Christians. And a part of that, as we've started this book on 1 Timothy, is maturing as a church. And we were challenged to see uh, what this book was written for last week. We remember that Paul wrote this book and has been titled a pastoral epistle. It's a letter to a friend in the ministry, and actually uh, a Christian son to Paul in the ministry, named Timothy. And he left Timothy at a church that he had started and helped to develop, the church in Ephesus. And as he writes to Timothy, first thing we talked about last week is that he gave him a specific charge. Uh, Let's look at it quick. Uh, Chapter 1, he says in verse 3, I urged you uh, when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So he leaves them at the church of Ephesus with a specific task to help the church grow in their understanding of who Christ is and their development in their Christian walk and how that church functions. Another thing we talked about last week, it's to, he was written to this church in Ephesus. And this church we know a little bit about because in Acts 20, it tells us that Paul ministered to this specific church for years, about three or so years. And then as he left them, he gave them a, a very heart-wrenching, uh, you just a, a, a spoken word to them to pay careful attention. He says in Acts 20, 28, he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves, talk of the church at Ephesus, and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which is obtained with his own blood. And then in verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And this, this letter to Timothy is written a couple years later, and he's challenging Timothy, okay, remember I warned the church at Ephesus that this is going to happen. Now it's starting to happen. So Timothy, I'm leaving you there to be a, a voice of truth and what God wants in the church there at Ephesus. So last week we looked at verses 1 through 11 in the book of 1 Timothy. And this week we'll be in verses 12 through 17. 12 through 17, and I've titled our message this morning, God's Grand Display. God's Grand Display. If you were with us two weeks ago, you remember that we had some testimonies. We had one baptism, and we had five different testimonies that we listened to. Uh, That is an exciting and fun time for a church family, and for other Christians even to hear the testimonies, the Christian testimonies of individual people. And what's the reason that it's exciting? Because we get to hear five different individuals talk about how God took them from a life without Christ, given to sin, serving sin, wanting to do everything for themselves, by themselves, to then God helping them recognize, I'm a sinner I need a Savior, that Savior is only Jesus Christ, and I want to give my life to him and accept salvation only through Jesus' work on the cross. Maybe you've heard testimonies like that, and some of your thoughts have been, oh, I wish I had a you know, more exciting testimony. Maybe something God has really saved me from that was deeper. Or maybe sometimes you hear a testimony and you think, well... Yeah, God saved them, but look at them. They're not that bad of a person. I mean, they haven't done big sins. And if I compared myself to them, you know what? I think I'm a way worse person than that individual that God saved. And in our mind, we start to contemplate, 
well, you know, God probably wouldn't even want me as one of his children. I know my sin, I know myself, and there's a reason why I've distanced myself from God, because I know he, doesn't, he wouldn't want a part of me. Well, the good thing is, is that as we come to Scripture, we see time and time again that God puts that thought in our mind to rest. And one, he helps to save multiple individuals that in our eyes might seem way too far gone, way more. We would not expect that this individual would get saved, but God's work in a person's life goes further and deeper than we can even fathom. We can think about different stories in the New Testament that are given to us. Think of the maniac of Gadara, the person who was uh, infested with multiple demons. Nobody could help this individual, but what happened? When Jesus walked on sight, yeah, he, he bowed down before Jesus. Jesus helped him get rid of the demons, and this man gave his life to Christ to serve him, to follow him, and wanted to serve him. And Jesus said, no, I need you to be someone who goes back and tells everybody else that you know about me. He gave him a job and a task to do, the maniac of Gadara. We would not expect that that individual would get saved, right? There are other people. Think about the despised tax collector named Matthew, who turned on his own people, was against God, but Jesus came, came along, changed his heart, changed his direction in life, and used him for a, a, a purpose of glorifying God, even so far as writing one of the Gospels in the New Testament about Jesus Christ, Matthew. Multiple stories. We could talk about the adulteress, Samaritan woman, who had multiple different husbands. Jesus came along, had this conversation with her, and it changed her life. It changed her life. We could talk about Zacchaeus, the tax collector who was ruthless and took and stole more than he needed. But he came along Jesus, and Jesus changed his life. We can talk about the Roman centurion at the cross who was in the job of killing people. He was a murderer, and he, he not so much a murderer, but he put people to death. He saw it all the time. But there was something different about Jesus' last breath. And as he died there on the cross, the centurion bowed and kneeled down and said, this surely was the Son of God. It changed him from the inside out. A, a real understanding of who Jesus is causes a reaction in the heart to want him, to accept him, and to live for him. Not just to have it be a, a side thing that we did one time, but it changes our trajectory of our life moving forward. We now serve him. We can think of other people, even outside the Bible, who have testimonies that remind us that God's message can reach anybody's heart with his help. Think of Martin Luther, who was a Roman Catholic priest who'd been taught his whole life that he needed to do certain things. He needed his work his way to, to salvation. But it was only through the in-depth study of God's word that he came to realize it is only by grace through faith that anybody can be saved. Martin Luther was turned, turned on to who Jesus Christ was and changed his life. John Newton was a former slave trader, worst of the worst, taught people and treated people like they were merchandise and did not care about people. Christ got a hold of his life and changed him forever. We can think about others as well. Martin Luther, John Newton, 
even skeptics such as C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, uh, if you know him, some, some of us only know him from the Chronicles of Narnia, the children's book that became very popular. But he is one of the greatest Christian thinkers that has written on Christianity. But at the beginning of his life, you know what? He was a skeptic. He was an opponent of Jesus Christ. And it was only through in-depth study, trying to actually oppose uh, Christ, that he came to know who he was and became an in-depth uh, teacher on Jesus Christ and Christianity. Jesus saves all sorts of people. He saves alcoholics. He, sa- he saves drug addicts. He saves murderers, adulterers, thieves, fornicators, homosexual, homosexuals, and people from every category of life. You know what that means? He saves us if we give ourselves to him. He offers the salvation through his son, Jesus Christ, to each and every one of us, even the most difficult, even the ones you think should not be, cannot get saved. But that hits us right in the heart because he saves us. We know our own heart. We're not, we know we can put on a show and we can make ourselves look good, but God knows our heart, but he still is willing to save us. One of the individuals that would classify himself as the worst of the worst is the person who wrote the letter to Timothy. His name is Paul. And we know that before his conversion, his name was Saul. He was someone that was directly opposed to who Christ was and directly opposed to the gospel message. But God saw fit to help him understand so that he could use him so that he could use Paul for his glory. That brings us to 1 Timothy 12. What we find is that in the first 11 verses, he, he really focuses in on this charge that he gives to Timothy to go and help this church, but he doesn't get too far into the letter before his mind automatically switches over to the gospel. Verses 8 through 11, he gives a description of the law and how to use it properly, and at the end of that description, his mind changes to the gospel message. And as we get to verses 12 through 17, he takes this aside section and he says, okay, I know I'm going to talk about to Timothy about, but I cannot overlook the gospel. It's in my mind. I got to write on it. I, I got to tell him what is most important in what he's doing at the church and what is most important in my life. Now let's look at verses 12 through 17. 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17. It says this. It says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse, 17, or verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What we find happening here is he thinks about the gospel. His mind automatically focuses on what God has done for him with the gospel. The gospel, of course, is Jesus Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, to free us from the chains of of sin and eternal death and damnation. His mind automatically goes to these thoughts, and his heart turns to thanksgiving. His heart 
turns to praise. And that's what we see throughout this whole passage today, and I challenge you with this morning, if I can get my thing to work, here we go, and challenge you with this morning, praise God for the grace and mercy of his saving love. Praise God for the grace and mercy of his saving love. That's what's on Paul's mind this morning, is that God has saved me, and it's been nothing that I have done myself. If I look at my own works, if I look at how I am, even now after salvation, I still do not meet meet or match up to who God is. It is only through Jesus Christ. And because it's Jesus Christ, I praise him. I thank him. I cannot live this life or sing a song about Jesus or, or think about what I do in this world without praising him. And that's Paul's whole heart is I praise him and I thank him for what he has done for me. So today is a day of praise, as we see in the text. Praise God for the grace and mercy of his saving love. I want to give us three things that we find in the text to praise, uh, praise God for in your heart toward God. Uh, and the first one that we'll find in the text is praise his work in your personal life. Praise his work in your personal life. Paul is not saying praise God without thinking about what has happened in his own life. He says in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though I formerly was a blasphemer and persecutor and insolent opponent. He starts out in verse 12 and he says, I thank God. He mentions the gospel and then says, my heart thanks God. My heart is in a a state of praise and thanksgiving because he's the one that gave me strength to even understand who Christ was and that I needed a savior. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, my Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, Paul is not looking at his own life and saying that God saw something in me that was good and that was right and that I was faithful to him so that he saved me. That's not what he's saying. It would go completely against what he is, his understanding of, of the gospel and bringing him out of, of his sinful life would be. He says, God judged me faithful by appointing me to his service. It means that he made me faithful by appointing me to his service. It's all about his grace and mercy. Paul, we know this because the very next verse in this section says, though I formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. He's not patting himself on the back and saying, I'm I'm so faithful. God God, God gave me some great position. He's saying, I was completely opposed to God. I had nothing that I wanted to do with him. But praise be to God, because with his help, he helped me come to him, recognize who he was. And maybe there are people here today who in their mind, they know the story of Jesus Christ. Maybe they've heard it, and maybe it's you. Maybe you've heard the story of Jesus Christ, but have you made him yours today? Or do you find yourself, as Paul describes himself, as someone who is a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent? That's how That's how Paul describes himself prior to Christ. Now, what do these words mean? A blasphemer? He is one who slanders God, who overtly speaks against him. And we're going to talk about what what Paul's life really, how that showed it. But he he recognized he's someone that was not for God. He was not for um, having a life, anything about the, the one that God wanted for him. He was a blasphemer. Not only that, he didn't just speak about God. He took action so that God's message and God's word would actually be diminished. He said that I was a persecutor. 
I took action to go against those who were truly wanting to serve Christ and wanting the gospel to go out. I attacked them. I hated them. I wanted nothing to do with them or with this God that these new Christians came up with. I was a persecutor of them. He says that I was an insolent opponent. This means that he was a violent aggressor. He wasn't someone that just spoke bad of these people. He took action to actually hurt them. A person, and this is a person with no normal concern for human kindness. Today we would call him a bully. He was a bully. People who didn't believe the way that he did, the way the Jewish system taught him to believe, he bullied them and he tortured them. He was against God. Let's turn over to Acts 9, and I want to take a moment to read this passage of Paul's conversion because it tells us a lot about what he continually goes back to in his personal life, that I remember who I was, and it was not someone that was good. It was someone that was against God. Acts 9, I want to read for you, verses 1 through 19. Acts 9.1 says this, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogue at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here am I, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. What we get here is the story of Paul's conversion. Saul to Paul. We get the before life of Saul He's a hater of Christianity. He's a hater of God. So much so that he is willing to murder. We know in Acts, he stood stood alongside of Stephen as Stephen preached for Jesus Christ and then was murdered by stoning. Paul was right there. 
holding the coats of those who were casting the stones. And we find the fear of all the Christians in the area being against Paul. I mean, God is speaking to Ananias himself and says, I got this guy, Paul, he's coming, you need to talk to him. And Ananias, talking back to God, says, I know this guy, he's going to kill me. And God says, don't worry, let me show you the power of the gospel. I'm going to change, I'm going to change Saul's heart, he's going to become Paul, and he is going to be a tool for me to show my glory to the rest of the world. Paul remembers back on this time often. To say, I was someone who was against it and without God's help, I would still be lost against God, but God saved me. He's looking at his personal life and his personal journey to Jesus Christ. What did we find that he was an obstinate opponent of Jesus Christ? Christ set about to bring Paul to himself. It wasn't anything that Paul did. It wasn't that he finally clicked in his knowledge and understanding, but Jesus softened his heart and said, Paul, you're against me, and I'm the one that you should be serving. Paul's eyes were open to the Savior, not just physically, because we know he was blinded, and then they were opened, but his spiritual heart was open to who Jesus Christ was and how he provided salvation. Paul gave the rest of his life to serving him. Thinking back on this time when he was against God, he was covered over and over, time and time again, by God's grace and mercy and his salvation through the cross. Yeah, as Paul, you can imagine thinking back and saying, I'm the worst. God shouldn't use me. God shouldn't be with me. Like I was, I was doing horrible things. And if we remember and we focus on our past life, sometimes we can fall into that same, same walk as to, to being downcast. But what do we find in the gospel is that there's freedom. God breaks the chains of sin. He breaks the chains of guilt because all of our guilt was paid for on the cross through Jesus Christ. The question is, is he your savior today? And is your guilt taken care of by his work on the cross? You know, if we don't have that understanding that he is our savior, we are going to be in a harder situation. And our mind, we're going to feel like we're the worst of the worst and we have nothing to do with, about it. But Paul here says, I remember that I was the worst, but God did away with that. He took the penalty for me and for you. If we accept him as our Savior, we don't have to live in the state of guiltiness. Verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Then he goes on to say this, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What he really focuses on here is the mercy and grace of God that overflowed to him. He says that I, previously, before salvation, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. He's not giving himself an excuse to say, oh, it was okay for me to do that. He's just saying that I thought I was doing what was right. I didn't understand who God was through Jesus Christ. All I understood was that the Jewish system has told me since a little kid, I had to do all these things and I had to try to earn my way to, to salvation. But God helped me see clearly that only through his son, Jesus Christ, was, was there any salvation possible. He says, formerly I acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He cannot talk about his salvation without focusing on God and the faith 
and love and grace that comes. And he says, it overflowed onto me. God saved me. It was nothing about me that I did it myself. One place I visited a long time ago was Niagara Falls. Okay, And if you've been there, you know the sheer power of Niagara Falls. What we know about it is that it's, it's a sight to see. You know, you want to go there. And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Niagara Falls uh, is the most powerful waterfall system in North America with the highest flow rate and a vertical drop of more than 160 feet. Every minute, 5.9 million cubic feet of water goes over the crest of the falls, creating a powerful demonstration of God's word. And I remember going here. I haven't gone here with my family, uh, but when I was a child, I was probably 8 to 10 years old, but I still remember watching it. And the thing that I remember is actually you can stand by more probably on this side. There's like a, a gate where you can stand and watch. But I saw the power of it, but then the mist even always blowing off over onto you. And what I want to use this for is an understanding of God's grace. But sometimes we can look at this and we can say, wow, if we explain this as looking like God's grace and his mercy, it's incredible. And sometimes we can stand there and we feel God's grace mist across our face, but it's only when we stop and we really focus on what he's done for us and we can see it in the power of something like this. This is like God's grace to us. You know, could you imagine if you were tasked with the job of, hey, we need this waterfall to stop, okay? How are you going to get this to stop? I mean, you couldn't do it, right? You would try to figure out some sort of way, but the water would overflow. And it's the same with God's grace and mercy. Paul mentions it, and he talks about it. He says, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me, in that he helped me understand salvation and a need for him, and every time I think about my salvation, it goes right back to him, loving him, serving him, wanting my life to be about him. Is that our understanding of God? When you think of your salvation and you really focus in on what God did for you, does it overwhelm you with God's grace and mercy? That's what Paul wants us to get out of this text, is God's grace and mercy overflowing to you and to me. So what we find... Uh, one thing to praise God for is praise his work in your personal life. That's what Paul did. He remembers what God did in his personal life. But number two, praise his work for the world. Praise his work for the world. Look at verse 15 to 16. It says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He starts in verse 16, to, and he kind of gives us a pause and a break. And he says, this is a trustworthy saying, worthy of full acceptance. He's saying, okay, I've said some stuff now, but stop, take a break. I'm going to say something very important. He's setting us up for the thing that he's going to say that's very important. He says, as a saying is trustworthy, deserves full acceptance. He says that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Yeah, that is the message he wants us to know. Why is that such a big, good thing for us to hear? Because you're a sinner. Because I'm a sinner. Because I still struggle with my sins and you still struggle with your sins. Does it say that Christ came into the world to save those who were good and didn't need somebody to help them in their life? No, that's not what it says. It says that Christ came into the world so that he would save and could save sinners. 
That means that when we, we struggle and we fail with sin, it, God wants us to come to him. He is there to help us. The saying's trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners. Then he continues on from there and he says, of whom I am the foremost. That means that I'm the biggest sinner. I'm the, the one that is on top of the mountain of those who sin. I am him. Paul's describing himself that way. He says, but I receive mercy for this, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Let's go back for a minute to what he says. He says that I am the foremost. And you might think of that and you say, well, he's not. You can see other people that are just as bad as him. But Paul is looking into his own heart and he's comparing himself with Jesus Christ. He's not looking at other people in the world. He's saying, I know my evil heart. And he's saying, the more that I get to know who Jesus is and the more that I see his holiness, I see the distance between me and him and, and the distance that Christ had to travel to, to be my Savior, he, he did that for me. I, and he's saying, I feel like the foremost. And the one that sticks out to me is the idea that he was actively opposed and trying to stop Jesus Christ and the gospel. You can think of other people that hate people. They murder. They, do, they live for, for their own selfish desires. But sometimes they're not actively opposed to Christ. Paul, Paul was that person. And God made that transition for him to a, from a life for himself to a life now serving God. He tells us this, verse 16, But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. What does he say? He says that um, God wanted to use me for his glory. Didn't matter how bad that I was, he determined in his own being as God that he was going to change me and use me. What we find here is that Paul prepares the readers for that important statement. He says what that important statement is, is that God came to save sinners. He says he's the foremost in the world. And then he says, but God saved me. Now, uh, Commentator Kent Hughes helps us understand this. He says, This is the thinking of a healthy, regenerate heart. Saving Christianity never endows one with a sense of superiority. Paul knew what he had been and what he was and what, what he continued to be in himself. This knowledge even increased with the years as he understood his heart even better than at first. And then, so he understood his own heart and he understood the distance between him and God. But that brings us back to the last thing that he uh, explained to us. He received mercy for God to display his patience. One thing that my kids get to do every year as they're in school is to present different projects in class. You've had kids in class and you know it. Half of it is the parent making half of the project, the kid doing the other half of the project. You know, you know how that goes. But one of the things that you normally have to do with a project a kid's presenting is go buy a, a tag board or a, a, a display board. You know, the bigger section in the middle, two on the side. And it's the purpose of presenting, displaying what this project is about. Uh, my kids had a couple of these a month or so ago. They were talking about different animals. And you put the most important thing, the biggest picture right in front so that you can explain what you're going to be talking about in your presentation. If we took that understanding and we took the gospel and we put it on a poster board 
Front and center, of course, would be Jesus Christ and his cross, his death on the cross, and maybe an empty tomb. That is the gospel message. We're sinners that caused Jesus Christ to have to come and take the, the penalty for sin on the cross. He did that. He took God's wrath for those who would accept him on the cross. He didn't stay there, though. He was resurrected. He defeated sin's death, or sin's uh, consequences. That would be front and center. But you know, some of the side things that would be on that board would be different Christians that he has helped to understand that message. Paul himself would be on that. And he says that. He says that right here. End of that verse. He says, Jesus Christ, he says, verse 16, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. How about the sins that we struggle with? How about the sins you struggle with? Sometimes we think it's too much for us and, and God shouldn't save me or why would he show his mercy and grace to me? You know what this text tells us? is because as far as God's grace and mercy reaches to us, it's showing and displaying his goodness, his love, his care for us. And other people can look at us and say, well, but you struggle with that. And you can say, you're right, I do. But God, his mercy helps me. Yeah, I don't have to pay for that for all of eternity, and God is helping me take steps in the right direction to him. But it's all about God's glory and his mercy and grace and love that is shown through those who follow him. It's not about us. It's all about him. Paul tells us, praise his work in your personal life, but we see that it goes further than just Paul's personal life, his work in the world. Praise his work for the world. He gets to the end of this section in verse 17, and he gives us the third thing that our hearts should praise. Praise his name forever. Praise his name forever. He gets to this section, and his heart is overflowing with gospel speak, gospel talk. And he's talking about his personal life. He's talking about what Jesus did in the world. He gets to this point where it's just too much, and he has to go into a doxology, a truth that that he has to say and talk about who God is. You ever been there where you talk about someone with something they're passionate about? You know, maybe it's something you're not passionate about, but you see their eyes light up. Maybe you talk to somebody about hunting, and hunters love to tell their hunting story, right? That big buck that they waited for, they walk around the tree, and, you know, they, they got the perfect shot. They love to tell that story. Maybe it's not hunting, maybe it's sewing or baking. You made that perfect thing that your family loved, and you love to go back to that. Maybe it's your favorite sports team, and that big game that they won. It's something that as you talk about it, you light up. And when you find someone that has the same interest as you, yet they light up as you talk to each other. You know, you know what it was that made Paul light up? It was the gospel. It was his Savior, Jesus Christ. How about you? Does that strike a chord in your life that when, I, when someone talks about Christ, when I hear a testimony, that my heart perks up because I love my Savior and I love to hear about him. I love to be part of that conversation. Paul is doing that in the passage. His heart is so overflowing. He gets to verse 17, and he just, he has to say it. He says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Where's the honor and glory go? Not to him, not for what he did, not for anything that he would do in his life, 
the honor and glory goes to God forever and ever. He, he uses specific words here in this doxology to explain who God is. He's the king of ages. He's the king of the past, present, and future, the one that will reign on the throne for all of eternity. He's the king of ages. We need to see him that way. He's immortal. He's not someone that was created. He is the creator. And we have to bow down to the creator. We are the creature. God's word will tell us that people will want to follow and serve the creature rather than the creator. Not Paul. He says to the king of ages, immortal. He's, He's always been there. Then he says invisible. He says the one that we can't always see, but we know he's there. We know he's working. And he's bringing about his perfect plan. He's invisible, but I know he's working. And then he's the only God. Nobody else reaches up to him. There is no other God. Uh, Throughout all of history, many people have tried to serve different people. But only God, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, is the true God who we serve. Have you accepted him today? Is he your Savior? Paul remembers back to his life before, remembers his conversion, and then praises, glorifies God for what he has done. He says God is the one to praise. And that's what I challenge you with today. Praise God for the grace and mercy of his saving love. One song that has been around for years and years is Amazing Grace by John Newton. John Newton, and he says this in Amazing Grace. We know the lyrics. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And hopefully it doesn't stop there. Not the hour I first believed, but as, 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 more, as much as I can take in about God and Jesus. It, just, it inclines a, a true believer's heart more and more to God, to love him more, to serve him more, and to give the gospel more to people around you. Be challenged. And praise God today for his gospel message and his saving grace and love that he's given to us. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for our time today in your word. We thank you for the life of Paul and that you showed us that there there is no situation or scenario too big where your son Jesus Christ cannot change a heart. God, we, we thank you for changing our heart as we've accepted your son. And if there's, no, if there's somebody here today who, who has not seen that change, has not accepted you, we pray for them. God, soften their heart. Bring them to an understanding that they need you and you're the only one uh, to live our life for. Thank you for our time in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen.